Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter one. We are in the second week of this series that we've entitled The People of Christmas. And I mentioned this last week, and I'll mention it again today, that oftentimes this time of year, especially if you attend a local church and, and, the, and, the, and you're sitting under the preaching, most often it's a Christmas series, and we are no exception to that. And, and, but one of, the, one of the obstacles in that is we are teaching on passages of Scripture that you know so well that you've heard so many times. You don't even have to be a part of a church and you're familiar with the Christmas story. So the tendency when we look at passages of scripture that, that are centered on the story of Christmas is our mind begins to go into neutral. And I said this before, but I wanna say it again today, that the story of Christmas is really a story that reminds us that God is faithful to all of his promises which means God is faithful to you and God is faithful to me. And specifically, there are 10 Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in this story of Christmas, which is why I say that the story of Christmas reminds us that God is faithful to his promises. But there's another aspect of this story of Christmas that's significant to every one of us who are in this room today because it reminds us of of this truth that God most often uses people to accomplish his purposes. He doesn't have to, he doesn't need to, but he desires to. And the people that God uses are not people that come from the best pedigree, who have the highest IQ, who are the most gifted, but it's individuals who have a certain type of heart. And we saw last week as we looked at Mary that she had a heart of faith. Today, we're going to look at Joseph. And so in Matthew 1, verses 18 and 19, we're going to look at verses 18 through 25 this morning, but I'm going to start reading in verses 18 and 19. I want you to look at this with me. It says in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So Matthew's literally going to lay out the story in his own way. And it says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, we'll talk about what that means here in a moment. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So before they came together speaks of that sexual relationship had not happened yet. Verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, like I said, when we deal with passages of Scripture around the Christmas story, we often just breeze by them and, and, and miss the significance of what is in this story. And I don't want us to do that this morning. See, what's going on here in these first two verses? Like, let's just take time to ask that question. What's going on here? And here are the two facts that are clear. Joseph had a double problem that is mentioned in these two verses of verses 18 and 19. Here's the first problem. It, in verse 19, Joseph is described as a just man. That word just means godly. He was a person of character. He was a righteous man. Some of your translations may say that. And because he was a just man and a godly man, that when he finds out this news that Mary is pregnant, he obviously knows it's not his child. So he's faced with a problem with the situation. Because he's godly, he says to himself, there's no way that I can marry this woman. Because he, unlike us, or he, unlike us, we know the end of the story. He does not. All he knows is Mary's pregnant and I know it's not mine. 
And so he's faced with a situation, man, I'm godly, I know what's right. There's no way that I can marry her. She's been unfaithful to me. That's the first problem that he's navigating through. Here's the second problem that he's navigating through because he's a just man, because he's a godly man. He knows the consequences that face Mary because of what has happened to her. Remember, he doesn't know it's from the Holy Spirit. And so what was common back during this time is if you had a woman who got pregnant before that couple was officially married, then she would be um, put to shame in in a public arena. That's what was commonly done. And then even in some instances, women who were immoral in that way could even be put to death. So Joseph is wrestling with this. I mean, it says there, look at it again in verse 19, him being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So he's dealing with this, okay, these are my rights, but I love her. And even in that, you can see Joseph's character, that I'm more concerned about her potential shame than even mine. And so what does he do? Well, he resolves, he makes the decision that I'm just going to divorce her quietly. Now, here's what can be confusing if we read verses 18 and 19. And remember, like we view it as though we've never read it before, and we don't know what actually is the case and what's going on here. What can be confusing to you if you're reading it for the first time is how Joseph can be called Mary's husband. Like some of you are like, I didn't even know that that's what Joseph was called because you're so familiar with this passage of Scripture. But look at it. It says, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way when Mary... When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and it says, verse 19, and her husband Joseph. So how are they husband and wife and not married? Well, here's what you need to understand about the cultural context of this day. And I mentioned this a little bit last week about the betrothal period, but I want to get into more detail so that we understand this. So it's not like today where you're like, man, I I met Lori and... You know, we were in college, it was 1998, and I was going to dinner with my friends, and she passed by with her friends, and I remember saying, man, who's that girl? And, they were, and then my guy friends were like, well, I think she's, I think she's dating someone, but they may have broken, broken up. And I was like, well, why don't, you, why don't you do some reconnaissance for me and see what's really the case? So they did, and I uh, asked Lori out, don't want to get sidetracked here, but I did ask her out in front of her ex-boyfriend. So kudos to me. And, um, and then we dated for a while. And then, and then I'm from Orlando, right? And so I asked Lori to marry me. You know, they don't have them anymore, but we were in the sky buckets right when the fireworks were going off. That was pretty great planning. And, um, and I, it, was, it was a little hard to get down on one knee in the bucket there, but nevertheless, I did it. And if you were to ask me, why did you ask Lori to marry you? I was like, man, I just knew. I'm like, like I, she, she, she was a person of character, and I loved her, and, and just in my heart, I had this heart of love. Well, guess what? That's not how it worked back then. Wasn't that romantic? See, what happened then is you had arranged marriages. So when your kids were little, it's like, hey, bro, uh, I like you, and we're buds, and this could be good for both of us, and so I think my son needs to marry your daughter, and, and to, to not go 
completely in, into depth and take all the time away. I mean, there was other things involved in that, but nevertheless, there was arranged marriages. And as the children got older, then they would have a sort of engagement. And during that engagement time, there was, there was a way out of it. But when it came a year before the marriage ceremony, that was the betrothal period. And there was no getting out of it. Like, like you were basically married with the exception of you hadn't consummated the marriage yet and you hadn't had the ceremony. But in every other instance, you were husband and wife. You didn't live together. You didn't have sex with one another. You hadn't had the ceremony yet, but the deal was done. And the only way to break that betrothal was through a situation like this, was through a bill of divorcement. And so that's why before they ever officially had the ceremony or consummated the marriage, they were referred to as husband and wife. Now, look at verses 18 and 19 again, because I want us to understand what Joseph was probably feeling, the emotions involved in this story that oftentimes are overlooked. So let's put ourselves in Joseph's shoes, and let's read verses 18 and 19 again, but take away that phrase, from the Holy Spirit. See, it says, his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, when you take that phrase out, do you begin to see the scandal of this story? Like, Joseph loves Mary. Mary has cheated on Joseph. Joseph now has to divorce her. Like, even in our anything goes, make up your own rules, culture that we live in today, there's still some element of scandal even in our context today. But think of it back then, where not everything did go. And that wasn't the culture. This is the scandal that's going on in this story that so often we lose sight of because of our familiarity with it. See, here's the title of the message this morning, Joseph, a heart of humility. That's what we're looking at this morning is humility. See, here's a definition of humility that I think you need to write down that I came up with. It's this, humility is a submissive mindset to God that manifests in selfless action for God. It's a mindset, but it just doesn't stop with my mindset. It's a mindset that leads me to action, selfless action for God. That's humility. And I think humility asks us, asks two things of us that are found in this passage of Scripture that we can see from application of this story of Joseph. And so look at verse 20 and 21, and we're going to see the first thing humility asks of us. It says in verse 20, but as he considered, considered means thinking, like thinking of all angles, like thinking at it from every which way. So think about it. Joseph is like, I love this. I love this girl. I've gotten to know her over the years. I want to marry her. She's cheated on me. I don't want to 
put her into public shame. How am I going to do this? Why did this happen? How did this happen? I thought I knew Mary. Like, think of all the thoughts that are going through Joseph's mind. That's the idea of considered. He's thinking about this from all angles. And it says that he considered these things, and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. So as he's thinking these things, he falls asleep, and this angel of the Lord speaks to him in this dream and says what? Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived is from her is the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will will save his people from their sins. Here's the first thing humility asks of us. Number one, to surrender your plans for God's purposes. You don't think Joseph had a plan for his life? It was, I'm sure, a modest plan. Joseph's plan was, I'm going to marry this girl that I love. We're going to have some kids. I'm going to work hard as a carpenter. I'm going to make a living for my family. God willing, we're going to see those kids grow up and we're going to have the opportunity to have some grandkids and then our life is going to be over. He had, I'm sure, a modest plan, but to him, I'm sure it was a good plan. And now his world is turned upside down by this news that the woman that he loved is pregnant with a child that he knows is not his. But see, he exercises humility as we will see in this passage in it. Reminds me, and it ought to remind you, that oftentimes, if not all the time, surrender involves me saying, God, I'm going to surrender these plans for your purpose. See, you're like, well, what does Joseph have to do with Jesus? What's the significance of Joseph, his life, to Jesus? Because really, Joseph is kind of the guy that nobody really talks about. Well, here's the significance. First of all, you could say if your thinking caps are on, you can like, well, he would have been a, a testimony. He would have been an advocate that, that, that Mary was a virgin after he hears what the angel has to say. And I would say, well, you're right about that, but there's more significance to Joseph than that. Here's the significance. Look at verse 20. You probably would gloss over this. I know I did until I was studying this passage of Scripture. It says... In verse 20, it says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And look at what the angel calls Joseph. He calls him Joseph, the son of David. Now, here's what you need to understand the significance of that. This is the only place in all of the Gospels where anyone is referred to as the son of David apart from Jesus. So the angel says, Joseph, son of David, because the angel knows, and God obviously knows, that in order to fulfill the prophecy that's mentioned in 2 Samuel 7, 14 to David, that his throne will endure forever, which means there will come a king from David's line that will establish his rule forever, which we know will come one day. Gray referred to it in our last song, that in order to fulfill that prophecy, the Messiah had to come from the lineage or the line of David. So what Matthew is doing here is he is stressing the point that Joseph is from the line of David. And the significance of Joseph to the Christmas story is Jesus needed to be raised by a man who was in the line of David so that that prophecy would be fulfilled, even though Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. There's significance there. But what, let's 
Though, as I said before, let's walk in Joseph's shoes for a moment. The woman that he loved, the woman that was going to have his children, the woman that was going to help him manage his household, the woman that he hoped to grow old with him, was found to be with child, and worse than that, the child was not his own. And I wonder how you would feel in that situation. How would that make you feel? Angry, disappointed, fearful, ashamed. Now, Matthew doesn't share with us any emotions that Joseph would have had, but let's not put Joseph on some pedestal that he doesn't deserve. He was flesh and blood like you and me. So even though it's not mentioned, I think we're okay to at least say we, we could infer, infer that Joseph would have been dealing with these types of emotions. But what I love when we look at this passage of Scripture is that God knew and God understood the types of emotions that Joseph would be experiencing. Those were not simply overlooked by God. God knew that. God knew Joseph's love for Mary. God knew that Joseph would be disappointed. So what does the angel of the Lord do in Joseph's dream? He appeals to God's word. He gives Joseph a prophecy that Joseph would have known. And the angel of the Lord uses God's word to calm Joseph's emotions. Look what it says. It says it in verse 23. He mentions the prophecy mentioned in Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, the angel of the Lord used God's word to help answer Joseph's questions. And God will always use his word to bring you assurance and direction that you surrendering your plans for his purposes is the right choice. Always. Always. Remember in our Game Changers series, before we entered this Christmas series, we looked at a passage of scripture that we know well, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. If there's ever a story that, sh- that is an illustration of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, it's Joseph's posture here. Because what does Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say? Hopefully you have it memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Joseph's understanding was, my wife wife to be cheated on me. Now I'm going to have to divorce her. I'm totally now going to live a life of, or or, or be ashamed in this situation. What are my friends, what are my family going to think of me? Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, lean on him. Submit, that's that word, acknowledge. Submit, surrender, and what will he do? He will make your paths straight. God always uses his word to calm your fears and to calm your doubts and to to answer your questions when you're faced with a situation to surrender your plans for his purposes. Some of us in this room, we're like, we're we're in this situation right now. We're like, man, I had a plan for my life. I had it all laid out. I was going to be here. I was going to be there. I was going to be here. I was going to marry this person. I was going to be married for this long. I was never going to have to, I I didn't plan on being divorced, whatever it may be. Your plans 
have not worked out the way that you desired, or your plan seemed to be the door is closing on what you planned, and God has you in a situation to where he is asking you to exercise humility and believe that he's going, he has a purpose. Whether that be to redeem your sinful consequences, or he has a purpose to say no to what your plans were, even though they weren't sinful. See, some of us are in this room, we're like, listen, I had great plans, and they weren't sinful. They weren't immoral. Joseph's plans weren't immoral. He had modest plans, but they were good plans. And you may be like, man, I had great plans. I, I had this laid out. I had these decisions that I wanted to make, and I thought they were going to work out this way. There was nothing in God's word that contradicted them. But God's asking you right now, Lord, I'm going to surrender my plans for your purposes. And I'm telling you, it's in those times when you're in those situations that you need to be God, in God's word in a significant way because he uses his word to speak to your doubts, just like he used his words to speak to Joseph's doubts. Here's the second thing that humility teaches us. It says in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, you need to underline these two words. You need to circle these two words, whether it's on your tablet, phone, or in your physical Bible. These two words, he did. He did. Not he thought about it. Not he wanted to do it. He did. He did what? He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. See, here's the second thing that humility asks of us. Number two, to exchange our fears for faith in what God promised. That's what the angel of the Lord is asking Joseph to do. Joseph, I want you to exchange your fears that are all legitimate, but because of what I've said in my word, I want you to exchange those for faith in what I've promised, in what I've prophesied. Listen to me, you know what that tells me about faith? Faith always involves obedience. Faith is not ethereal. So we can come into church and we can sing about faith. And we can come into church and we can read about faith. And we can come into church and listen to a sermon about faith. And we can go to our small group and discuss faith. But if I'm going to truly have faith and exchange my fears for faith in what God promises, it's always going to have a response of action or obedience. It's not ethereal. See, fear has actions as well. Fear keeps me from doing what God has said. Faith involves obedience. See, what did Joseph do? He took Mary as his wife. But secondly, he called his name Jesus. What's the significance of that? Because in this culture during this time, by Joseph marrying Mary... And naming Jesus, that was a sign in the culture that Jesus was legally Joseph's son. Which meant that that prophecy that I mentioned earlier in 2 Samuel 7 was fulfilled. See, there's such significance in what Joseph did. Because of his obedience, prophecy was fulfilled. Do you see the significance of Joseph's obedience? It's 
great significance there. Makes me think of um, when, I was, when I was in Florida, um, that's where I pastored before, uh, before we were up here, and uh, I was down there, um, I'll be here three years in January, so before this time I was down in Florida, and we had a really large large staff at that church. And what we did every year is we threw this big Christmas party. I'm sure all of you have Christmas parties coming out the ears, especially if you have both people working in your household. And so you know the stress of that. But nevertheless, we would have to throw this big Christmas party. And part of the tradition was, is we would do a gift exchange. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, we would do this white elephant gift exchange and you'd pass out the numbers. And I don't even, I I've done that for years, and I still don't know completely how that works, but if you, you know, you get a certain number, and I can't remember if it's the first number or the last number that's the best number that you want, and you get so many chances to steal the gift from someone else, right? And, and so anyway, we did that, and so uh, we couldn't spend more than $15, and so Lori and I, being the nice people that we try to be, we were like, you know, we're not going to get some piece of junk that nobody wants. We're actually going to buy a nice mug and put a $15 Starbucks gift card in it, because that's what I'd want. And maybe we'll even be lucky and walk home with what we got. You know, so who knows? But so, so we, we did this gift exchange, and you have them all on the table, right? And, and if you've done this long enough, you usually can figure out that the big gifts are the gifts that you don't want, because that's the junk that people want to get out of their house, right? It's the small gifts that you want. But nevertheless, we were exchanging the gift, and so I did not follow that protocol, and I went against my instinct, and I got a larger gift, and I thought, well, this looks like, I mean, it's got an amazing bag, and it looks really nice. Someone spent money on the bag, so this probably is a significant gift, so I got the gift, and I was picking for Lori, so we were picking as a couple, so there's weight in my decision there, right, guys? And so I I picked that, and I began to open it up, and I was like, this is weird. This is like this plastic box, and I pulled it out, and it literally was a plastic cage with a mouse inside. I was like, oh! Like, like, I was like, what? Like, there could not be a worse gift that you could give us than that. And here's what they, they thought they were really clever. Like, they were laughing and hooting it up. There was actually a gift card inside of the cage. So you had to take the risk of going inside the cage and the mouse running over your fingers to get to the gift card. Why do I mention that silly illustration? Because that's often how we see God when we're being asked to surrender our plans to exchange our fears for faith in what he's promised. See, we view God as, man, God, my plans are good because I made them. I came up with them. And you're asking me to surrender these? You're asking me to to ignore my fears and have faith in what you promised? And we oftentimes think of God as if I surrender these things and exchange these things and lay these things down, what God is going to give me in return is a rotten egg. Sure, There's no way that God is going to replace what he has asked me to surrender and it be something better for me. There's no way that he's going to do a greater work in me and through me than the plans that I had come up with. There's no way that my fears are going to be answered in the way that I want them answered if I make this exchange. But praise God that Joseph had enough humility to say, I'm going to believe what God has said, and I'm going to trust that he's spoken. 
And I'm going to believe that God is always faithful to what he has promised. I wonder, what is God asking you to exchange? See, I found that, and I can back it up with God's word, that God primarily speaks through three things. Number one, his word. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. He speaks through his word. But he also speaks through his spirit. See, Romans 8 talks about that the Holy Spirit affirms with my spirit that I'm a child of God. And so I've had times in my life, and I'm sure years, that when I'm in God's word and I'm asking God, what are you doing, that there's, there seems to be the result of that when I'm surrendered to him, that there's this peace that comes, there's this assurance that comes, and you can't explain it, it's supernatural, that calms and tells you that everything is going to be okay, that God is in control, even though you don't know the outcome. What is happening? The Holy Spirit is assuring your spirit that you are a child of God, that you have a heavenly Father who knows all things better than you do. God speaks through his word and God speaks through his spirit, but God also speaks through his people. God speaks through his people. Have you ever found that you're, you're like going through something difficult and you may even come in on Sunday morning and and I'm opening up God's word. Whoever's behind this pulpit is opening up God's word. And you're like, man, was he listening into my house this last week? What does God do? He's using his people to confirm his word in you. Or you're sitting in small group and you're like sharing a prayer request. And all of a sudden, someone that you've known for a long time is like, man, I went through that exact same thing. And here's what God has taught me. What is he doing? He's affirming through his people. What did Mary do when she found out that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit? She went to Elizabeth. And what did Elizabeth do in the passage that we looked at last week? She encouraged her. God speaks through his word. God speaks through his spirit. And God speaks through his people. See, we underestimate the consequences of our obedience and faith. We think, man, what in the world is this posture of humility going to accomplish? When everything in me wants to rise up and say, no, what is it going to accomplish? I can't see the ending here. This is going to accomplish nothing. What's this little act of obedience going to accomplish? Like, what is it? What, what is this going to approve or, 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 or lead to. I can't see it. Joseph, I'm sure, had no idea what God was doing. But he didn't determine whether or not he would obey by the significance that he thought it would bring. He obeyed because it was an act of faith. He surrendered because he understood who his God was. And don't ever underestimate what your act of humility can accomplish for the kingdom of God. Don't ever underestimate what your act of obedience can accomplish for the kingdom of God. Don't ever minimize and determine how small or how big it is. God just wants you to obey. God just wants you to have a heart of humility that says, I'm going to have a submissive mindset that leads to selfless action. And let me say this, we are not here this morning to end our message and to promote Joseph to this godlike status. Because Joseph was like you and me. The only difference was is he took the chance on God. He obeyed. He had faith. But the ultimate example for us this morning, 
to what humility looks like as the person of Jesus Christ. Because Philippians 2 has something to say about humility. It says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. What mind? What mindset? The definition that we gave, this selfless, submissive mindset that leads to selfless action. Jesus could not be more selfless than coming and putting on human flesh and coming humbly to be a baby and to experience what it's like to go from a baby to adolescence to a full-grown man. But he did that so he could live a perfect life for you, a life that you and I can't live. As many good things as we try to do, it's always gonna be marred by the sinful things that we do. And God demands perfections. That's why Jesus came. That's why he lived a perfect life, to replace your sinful life. He died on the cross paying the perfect penalty that was necessary for my sin and yours. And he rose again three days later. Jesus is the epitome for us and the ultimate example of what it looks like to exercise humility. And did not Jesus surrender his plans? He said in the garden, it's at all possible, Lord, let this cup be removed from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. exchanged his fear, not knowing what it would be like to be separated from God the Father as his all of sin was put on himself. But what did he do? No, 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 he had faith. He understood what he was here for. And Jesus is our example. I mean, thank the Lord that Joseph, even though he never talks. Do you know that Joseph never says a word that's recorded in the Bible? Never. Like, I'll look at my nativity forever different when I see that little figurine of Joseph. I'll be like, man, not much is mentioned about you, but man, your actions speak so much louder than your words. You know what Joseph realized through that act, acts of humility and those acts of obedience? He understood that Jesus is a way maker. Jesus is a miracle worker. Jesus is a promise maker. He's a light in the darkness. He understood, man, that's who my God is.